I grew up in a church that periodically had personal testimonies in worship services. And in these testimonies, I heard some of the nuttiest things you've ever heard. A lot of doctrinal error and rarely any God-centered truth. And as an unconverted kid, I was always excited when we would have a testimony service because I knew this would bring the crazies out of the woodwork. And I was never disappointed. The testimonies almost always involved extra-biblical revelations, lots of tears, and the rambling. Oh, they went on and on. This was incredibly entertaining for a 10-year-old boy. Mom and Dad would just roll their eyes, and my brother would sit next to them, and we would try to restrain ourselves from just rolling on the floor laughing. Tonight, we're going to hear a testimony, but there will be nothing crazy about it. There will be no rambling. It will be only one sentence in length. It's in our text, and it is so brief, you will miss it if you blink. Our, Our text, 2 Kings 5, and I hope you have your Bible open that you may carefully study the word and be a Berean with me tonight, is a snippet from the life and ministry of the great prophet Elisha. It tells of the miraculous healing of Naaman, the Syrian military commander, the Chronological context is about 150 years after the death of David, so 820 B.C. or so. And the nation of Israel is divided into the southern kingdom and northern kingdom. And both kingdoms are steeped in idol worship. In the Old Testament, the Lord had provided an ongoing succession of prophets for the people of God. These men were the successors of Moses. And that prophet is now Elisha which means he serves as the mouthpiece of God to the nation. Let's seek the help of the Lord as we prepare to open this vital text. Our Father, we ask that you would send now your Holy Spirit to help us as we open your word. We pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Reminded you over the last couple of Sundays that there are four major characters in this narrative. We have taken a glimpse at three of them. We won't look at the fourth until next Sunday evening. The first of the four characters in this narrative is Naaman. Naaman is introduced to us in verse 1 of 2 Kings 5. He's the, the general of the Syrian armies. Syria, by the way, in case you haven't picked up on this, is Israel's enemy and sits to Israel's east. Naaman, the the general, is valued in Syria. He's honored. He's brave. But most importantly, he's a leper. This casts a horrible shadow over everything else in his life and everything about him. He's the victim of a, a loathsome, incurable disease. He's a pitiful, repulsive man with no prospect for any improvement in his condition. This man who's highly privileged in his culture and honored is still just a leper. Leprosy was the most feared and terrible disease of the ancient world. Not only was it always grossly disfiguring, it almost always ended in a cruel and painful death. There are nine incidences of leprosy recorded for us in scripture and this is one of those nine now if you're wondering does this still happen today yes 
There are 3 million known cases of leprosy. You can look it up under Hansen's disease. 3 million known cases worldwide of people who are permanently disabled. India has the greatest number of cases. As of this last week, there are 108 known cases in the USA. But let me remind you what Naaman's life was like. First of all, to think about the physical effects. This man, highly honored, valued by his king, brave, a highly decorated warrior, the commander of the armies of Syria. There were the physical effects. Leprosy starts with sores and boils and then spreads. It eats away at the flesh, uh, attacking extremities first, then eating away at the bones. It renders the leper unable to feel pain or any sensation. It's always accompanied by raging fever and sleeplessness. Soon the sufferer is covered with oozing sores and scabs. The faces of the leper are like chunks of burnt coal, bloated but hard, cracked, and scabbed. The voice of the leper is distinct because leprosy quickly attacks the larynx and it renders the sufferer with a distorted, raspy voice. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop off. Eyes are bloodshot and always burning. The noses are sunken because of decaying cartilage. Their tongues are black, swollen, and ulcerated. Toes and fingers lose all their sensation, and they begin to erode. And if all of this were not enough, lepers always give off a foul odor because the body is rotting away. That's just the physical effect. And then there's the social effect. The relational lot of the leper, at least in Israel, Naaman didn't live in Israel, he was a Syrian, but the relational leper lot of the leper was summed up for us in Leviticus 13. God in his law had, laws for public hygiene and disease had said this in Leviticus 13. The leper on whom his sore is, his clothes shall be torn, his head bare, he shall cover his mustache, and as he goes from place to place, he shall cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Think for a moment about the humiliation and the isolation of the leper's life in Israel. They were typically beggars since there was no other way they could support themselves. In some documented cases, the families of lepers would try to bring food outside the camp, deposit it someplace dry, run away, and the later would later pick it up. And then there were the religious effects of being a leper, at least in Israel. The Israelite leper could never attend or participate in temple worship or synagogue services. They were functionally excommunicated. They had no access to the means of grace. But leprosy is not only a real historical thing, it's a symbolic picture. You see, the leper is a physical illustration, a symbol and a type of you and I, apart from the cleansing work of Christ. Sin has invaded all our faculties. It runs from the soles of our feet to the top of our heads so that we are completely unclean. This is how we're born and how we live. This is simply another way of saying what Ephesians 2.1 says about us, that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Leprosy was a, a symbol of the loathsomeness and the ugliness of sin and the progressive deadening effects of sin and its disfiguring, deforming effects on the individual 
and the separation and division and alienation it caused in society. Like sin, leprosy is deeper than the skin and can't be solved by surface measures. And like sin, leprosy spreads quickly. And as it spreads, it defiles. And like sinners, lepers were looked upon as walking dead men. And garments infected with leprosy were fit only for the fire, we're told in Leviticus 13. That's our first character, Naaman. Our second character we've met is this unnamed young girl. We read about her in verse 2 and 3. Now, I keep stressing that she's nameless. The best scholars have pegged her age somewhere between 10 and 13. But she's not even important enough to have her name written down in Scripture, although she's actually the hero of the text. She has lived through and is living a hard providence. She's been kidnapped from Israel and taken eastward by the pagan Syrian armies. She's been taken from a believing family, and that shows up very quickly. This little girl is placed into forced servitude in the home of Naaman. No doubt on her part, this girl who'd been kidnapped and trafficked now, there was heartache and tears and homesickness and terror. But God had a providential purpose. God's purpose was for this little girl to be used to bring a pagan leader to the true and saving knowledge of the triune God. This girl may have been young, but she was perfectly aware of what God was doing in the world and who he'd raised up. Look, for example, at verse 3. This young girl knew about the office of prophet, God's mouthpiece. She knew where the true prophet lived in the little village of Samaria, in the region of Samaria. She knew that a true prophet had supernatural abilities. She'd been paying attention back home in Israel. This young girl, from the other miracles that Elisha had done, and this is astounding, she knew what God's prophet of the day was up to. Because look what we're told in verse 3. She knows what the prophet is doing. And so this young girl knows from and infers from the other miracles Elisha had done, inferred that he could cure her master. And from his willingness to do good to all men, inferred that he would cure her master, even though he was an enemy Syrian. What makes this so amazing, what makes her statement in verse 3 so incredible, look at that in wonder. Jesus will tell us in Luke chapter 4, many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. This little girl's faith is working overtime because she'd never seen or heard of an Israelite leper cleansed by Elisha. But she draws inferences from the mighty works of Elisha and says, well, I know he's never done it before, but he could do it in this case. He could do it in the case of Naaman. Now, obviously, this young lady had been raised in a believing home, a home where her parents instructed her. If they had not, she would have been in, she would have been of no use in the situation. But she was a covenant child of the seed of Abraham. She actually cared to be a blessing to the nations. She wanted good done to her lost master. She knew, because she'd been raised in a a Bible-understanding home, she knew from the example of Joseph how he had been taken to a foreign pagan land, enslaved just like her, 
But God used him mightily. She had learned to say those words of Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Look at the movement of the text. So Naaman hears about this this prophet who can work miracles in Israel. And so he goes to his king, the king of Syria, in verses 4 through 6. And he asks if he can go seek a healing. He hears of hope in Israel. And the king writes him a letter of introduction. And then loads him up to go to Israel. Not on a raid to kidnap young girls. Not on a military attack by Syria against Israel. But to try to, and this is key. It shows you how lost people think. He sends him to go and purchase a healing. And so Naaman takes with him a massive amount of resources. Look at verse 5. What you've got there is, this is incredible wealth. He takes a massive amount of silver, gold, and expensive clothing. Just the gold valued in today's market would be worth hundreds of thousands, probably multiple millions of dollars. There's a little mix-up in verse 7 with the king of Israel. And finally, Naaman is summoned to Elisha's house. Finally, Finally, Naaman gets to the healer, Elisha the prophet. He and his impressive entourage, they have to cross the border, come into Israel, go deep into the interior, and they have to go to this tiny nowhere town of Samaria, and they ride to Elisha's front door. And immediately offenses start happening. Naaman thought as he rides up in his his chariot, surrounded by bodyguards and a, a small company of troops, translators. Naaman thought, well, Elisha will come out. He's heard I'm coming. And he'll roll out the good china for the general. He'll have the best chair sitting out. Because of my office, I'm the commander of the Syrian armies. And because of my huge gift I'm bringing, it's word has gotten out of what I'm bringing in verse 5. Because of my diplomatic letter I'm bearing from my king. Naaman expects immediate personal attention to his case. Isn't this like lost men who always are self-important and easily offended? Elisha doesn't even come out onto the porch. Look at verse 10. He sent a messenger out. Naaman doesn't even see Elisha's face. God is no respecter of persons and neither are his ministers. But Elisha does send out a servant with instructions Elisha knows the important thing is the message, not the messenger. And here are the instructions from Elisha through his servant to Naaman. Uh, Naaman, go to the Jordan River, about 25 to 30 miles back in the same direction you just came from. Go out in the wilderness, wash seven times. Naaman, by the way, you'll have to get down out of your gleaming chariot and wash not once, not twice, but seven times thus completely renouncing self, demonstrating the filth that you bear. And by the way, Naaman, there will be no ritual, no hocus-pocus, no choreography. This is the part that really troubles and offends Naaman. Look at verse 11. Naaman is shocked. He wants a ritual. He wants a show benefiting a man of his status. He wants the spectacular, something impressive. Naaman says in verse 11, he wants Elisha to come out to me, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and here it comes, wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. 
But I want you to notice what the promise is in verse 10. And it's astounding that the promise is totally missed by Elisha. At the very end of the message that Elisha sends out by the servant, after he said, go wash in the Jordan seven times, your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. You'd think that Naaman would say, okay, doesn't matter. I'll go do backflips in the Jordan for seven weeks as long as I can be cleansed of this horrible disease. But notice what we're told about Naaman. He's furious in verse 11. He leaves in a rage, verse 12. Back in Syria, nobody talks to me this way. People stand up when I come into the room. Men salute. They call me General Naaman. I'm offended. Offended that Elisha has not come out to me and have personal dealings. Doesn't he know who I am? I am somebody. Offended that Elisha didn't meet his expectations of a healing ritual. Offended that Elisha tells him to wash in this little dirty river. Elisha, why didn't you just send message to wash in one of our cleaner rivers back in Syria? Naaman's pride has been punctured. His pride of office. I'm a five-star general, victorious in great battles. His pride of nation. I'm a Syrian. Our army is greater than anybody else's and our rivers are better. He wants to be healed, yes, but he wants to be healed in a way that honors him, respects him. Naaman wants his dignity and importance acknowledged. And he storms away angry and he heads back to Syria. Elisha doesn't run after him. He doesn't even come out the door. Elisha leaves it in the hands of a sovereign God. As Naaman and his entourage are heading back to Syria, a group of his servants begin to talk as they're riding back across the desert and they devise a plan. Y'all, we've got to talk some sense into Naaman. This is his only chance. And look at their speech in verse 13 to him. As I said last week, it's a classic Example of the argument from the greater, the greater to the lesser. So they're saying to Naaman, would you do something spectacular and expensive to be healed? Yes, I was ready to do so. So why not do something humble and free to be healed? <coughs> and Naaman finally listens. He obeys. And look at verse 14. This is the centerpiece of the text. But it's so simple You'll read right past it. He does exactly what he was told, and then listen to these last words in verse 13, 14. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now comes the drama and the testimony. As soon as Naaman comes up out of the water, he gets in his chariot and he heads back. There's a, there's a geographical element to our text. Naaman has been sent to the Jordan River, which is already halfway home to Syria. <clears throat> but of proceeding on, instead of proceeding on eastward, Naaman, after being healed, goes west, back to Elisha's home in Samaria. He's just made his trek 60 miles longer. So he's gone back and forth, back and forth. What would move him to go back once again, a second time, to the little tiny town of Samaria? Well, there are two factors, and these two factors are what accrue to our assertion that Naaman has been converted. Two factors in the life of Naaman. First of all, we see a man driven now by humility, 
No longer does Naaman expect Elisha to come out to him and pay deference to him. He's been lowered. By the way, human pride is always ridiculous. Here is a man, Naaman, who is consumed with a flesh-eating disease. And up until this point, he's been proud. What a picture of you and I. What do we have to boast in? What do we have that we haven't received? Your pride in mine is just as laughable as Naaman's was. Naaman's pride had to be removed, and it was. He comes back low. Do you know what? After he comes back, the most repeated title he gives himself is five times? Your servant. Your servant. Your servant. Over and over again. He's humbled. This is the first way that we know he's converted. And then the second reason that we see and assert that he's converted is he comes back for this simple issue to show gratitude. Gratitude, which is rare. A moment ago, our brother Mark read the saga of the 10 lepers healed in Luke 17, and only one returned to give Jesus thanks. How many are those, perhaps even in this room tonight, who can plead for help and mercy and grace, but they're forgetful at gratitude when they receive the requested mercy? Ingratitude is a way of saying that God actually owes us whatever he gives, and we owe him nothing in return. This, of course, is a a reversal of our true position before a sovereign, holy God. Ingratitude is a direct result on God's glory. When we do not profusely thank God for his blessings, we're robbing him of the praise he deserves and should have. Gratitude, by the way, for divine blessings is expected. Jesus says so in Luke 17. Gratitude is a gospel duty. Now let me quickly add, gratitude does not come naturally. We come out of the womb as ingrates. Paul asserts this in Romans 1 and 2 Timothy 2. One of the clearest evidences of a lost state. Parents, listen to me carefully with your children. One of the most frequent questions I have from parents to me is, how can I tell if my child is converted? Do they say thank you? The lost man is always ungrateful. Well, notice Naaman's testimony. I told you or hinted at the testimonies that I grew up with, and man, could they go on and on. I remember one little old lady. She never showed up except when there were, it was listed in the church newsletter on this night, we will be having a testimony service, and she would show up and sit in the front row. She was four foot nothing, and when she would stand up, the deacon would go down to hand her the mic, and my brother would elbow me and say, here we go. And she would always reach in her purse, take out one set of dentures, and put another set in. And she would say, I've got to put on my testifying dentures. And it would get good after that. I never knew of her to testify for anything less than 10 minutes, and it was always crazy as a spaceship. Well... Look at Naaman's testimony of exclusive faith in verse 15. Do you see it? Blink and you'll miss it. Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. That is it. This is, by the way, 
Notice who Naaman's testimony is given to. He doesn't require a big congregation. He doesn't have to have any special meeting. Now, notice who's with him. All of his aides, all his entourage, all these Syrian worshipers of Remen are with him. And so he's bold. And by the way, this is the first time Naaman has seen Elisha. Remember, the first time he came to his home, Elisha didn't even come out of the house. And so this testimony is given surrounded by an armed band of Syrian warriors. Naaman will not be a secret disciple. And so he makes his confession of faith in Jehovah, standing in his chariot on foreign ground, surrounded by warriors. Now, not only does he have a a firm belief in the God of Israel, Jehovah, but notice what else he does in verse 15. He repudiates and rejects any other so-called God. Listen to his words. Now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. And so his men all around him were saying, did he just say what I thought he said? Is he saying Rimmon is not legit? What about all these other gods that we have temples to lining the streets of Damascus? By this testimony, Naaman is completely renouncing polytheism and inclusionary spirituality. By this word, Naaman has just denounced all the religions of his home country of Syria, every one of them. Now let me point something out to you. Naaman is one of a handful of very few Gentile converts in the Old Testament. List them with me. Rahab, Ruth, perhaps the king of Nineveh in Jonah's day, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's day, and a handful of others. Just a couple of days earlier, before he rode in anger over to the river Jordan to dip seven times, Naaman was binded by loss, blinded by lostness. Now he sees. And he has cognitive certainty. This isn't a weak testimony. Look at the key word he uses in verse 15. Now I know. He has intellectual certainty. Not, I, I, I think this might be the living God. I hope it is. He unembarrassedly uses the word, I know. Now let me tell you what will happen tomorrow. If you go into work, if you still are one of those rare people who actually goes to work, but if you go into work and you talk to people and they say, um, what did your preacher preach about last night? Well, preached about cognitive certainty. Preached about how the believer can know that the triune God or the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God eternally existing in three persons, you can know that he is the one true and living God. No. Well, that sounds pretty arrogant to me. That's what postmodern philosophy says. That any claims to intellectual and moral certainty is just arrogance. It's not arrogance. The Holy Spirit had given Naaman saving faith by hearing the word. <clears throat> now let me ask you, and you're going to have to be you're going to have to be historically conscious and biblically savvy to get this. Where would Naaman have heard? Where would he ever have heard from anybody that Jehovah demanded exclusive worship, that he was the one true and living God? Well, guess who he had living in his house? He had the Jewish slave girl 
who had told him, he'd probably heard her say the words of the Shema 500 times. He'd heard from this young girl, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, every Jewish child's first memory verse. Jewish children were expected to know how to recite the Shema by the age of three. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. He'd been hearing that, hearing it for months, perhaps years. Faith had come by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So when he stands in his chariot outside of Elisha's house and he said, I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. He'd been hearing it inside his own house. The Lord had given saving faith. Now we have a little economic transaction to engage him. Remember what's in Naaman's gleaming chariots? Gold, silver, clothing. And so <clears throat> Naaman wants to give some of those to Elisha. Look what he says in verse 15. Please take a gift from your servant. There are whole satellite TV stations. Maybe you watch some of them. If you do, I will tell you unabashedly to repent and turn them off. There's anything, there's anything better. Go watch the shopping channel instead of these. In our house, we call it the heresy TV station. But there are whole satellite TV stations that have been on the air for 40, even 50 years, who have lived off saying the words of verse 15, except with one tiny change. Look at what Naaman says. Please take a gift from your servant. The satellite TV hucksters say, please give a gift to your servant. Some of these demand that you, the needy consumer who needs healing, will sow a seed of faith, meaning a financial gift to them. And if you're not healed after you send in your, your, your seed and faith gift to them, they blame this on your lack of faith or the fact that your gift wasn't large enough. Naaman was so overjoyed to be healed and to savingly know the one true and living God that he came prepared to pay. Do an inventory with me. Look back at verse 5. Here's what he was willing to give to Elisha. Ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. Elisha, you got kids to send to college. Come on, man. What Naaman needed to understand was that the Lord's blessings were never transactional, never quid pro quo, that the Lord's kindness is all of grace. When God gives a blessing to any sinner, it's free. <coughs> Elisha <coughs> wanted Naaman to return to Syria and to say to the king of Syria and to all his family and friends, the God of Israel took nothing from me but my leprosy. My gold and silver and expensive garments were useless in dealing with Jehovah. He gave me everything and he would take no payment. Now notice how serious Elisha is about this principle. Look at verse 16. He takes a solemn vow about it. He says, as the Lord lives. That's, the, that's vow language. He says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand. I will receive nothing. And then Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. He can accept no credit for Naaman's healing, and so he'll take nothing for it. Because it's far more important 
that Naaman learn of grace, free grace, than for Elisha to improve his bank account. Now, Elisha already has a, an Old Testament role model. Elisha would have known this. He would have read the account hundred times of Abraham in Genesis 14. You remember the, the famous moment where General Abraham had gotten together his crack seal team six of 300 men and he had gone and rescued family and friends back and along with his battle partner, the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom says, here, Abram, let me reward you for this. And Abram says in Genesis 14, I have raised my hand to the Lord. In other words, I too have taken a vow. To the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and I will not take anything from you, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Abraham refused to take anything from the Sodomites. Why? First of all, he wanted no alliance with the Sodomites. He refused to live off the Sodomites' goods, to be associated with them or to be beholden to them in any way. He does this too because he wanted God to get all the glory. Abraham knows that all of his blessings, all of his abilities come from the hands of Jehovah. So then look at Naaman's request. It's confused many interpreters confuses more Bible readers. And so what I want to try to do is make this very simple and clear. Look at verse 17 and 18. After this, Naaman goes off the pages of Scripture until Jesus brings him up again in Luke 4. And so notice what Naaman wants to discuss. And one of my other points that that were my other assertions, the reason why we know that Naaman is converted, is he wants to discuss worship. One of the first heartbeats of the new believer is they want to say, okay, now that I've been saved freely by grace alone, cleansed of my wickedness, how do I worship this God? I'm always very suspicious of those who say, I I don't care anything about worship. I'm thinking, this is the most important task of the believer. This is what you'll be consumed with for all eternity, and you don't care? Naaman wants to discuss worship. He realizes he can't just confess the true and living God, he must worship him. And so look what he does. This is one of the stark distinctions between the old and new covenant. Look carefully at verse 17. He asked Elisha, and you're going to ask for a second, well, what does this have to do with worship? He asked Elisha for a couple loads of Israelite dirt. Naaman is on his way home, back to Syria. He'll cross the borderline out of Israel into Syria. He's on his way back home to Syria where he may be the only worshiper of Jehovah in the whole country besides the slave girl that lives in his house. So he wants to build an altar, an altar to Jehovah, the one true and living God where he can sacrifice his burnt offering, where he can worship. And Naaman's tangible link to the true God and the true worshipers of God will be Israelite dirt. So Naaman, look what he says, promises in verse 17. He will only offer a sacrifice to the Lord. That's the last phrase. To no other gods, but to the Lord in verse 17. And he says that he will not, in verse 17, engage in any burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god. So this leaves you wondering what's going on in verse 18. Look there carefully. 
Read the word slowly. The last request Naaman makes. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, that's the king of Syria, goes into the temple of Remen to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Remen. When I bow down in the temple of Remen, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Well, the official ceremonial duties Naaman had and engaged in a couple of times a year as the commander-in-chief of the king's armies was he went on ceremonial days with the king of Syria into the temple of Rimen. Now, I've been holding this in abeyance since last week. Rimen is the Syrian name for Baal. And so he's been used to going into the temple of Baal with his king and and. Naaman has already think about those incidents. And he knows what his king is going to do. His king, after he gets back, is going to say, Hey, Naaman, that's great that you were healed, but you know, our, our Baal celebration day is coming up. We have it a couple of times a year. Can you meet me at nine and go over for the festival day? And, you know, what we do. So the king of Syria would come in, accompanied by his, his general. The king would, we are told in verse 17 and 18, he would bow down who would lean and lean on his general who would have to bow down with him. And Naaman has already said, look at verse 15, look at his confession. There is no other God than Jehovah. He has said in verse 17, he will not worship false gods. He's saying, I will be involved in official governmental duties. Now you could say, listen carefully, you could say, Naaman, in that moment, this is your chance to stand up and repudiate Rimen Baal. And that would be a mature, brave response. But Naaman is a brand new believer of somewhere between 24 and 48 hours. And soon enough, everyone in Syria will know that Naaman is a worshiper of Jehovah when two things happen. They're going to know he's a worshiper of Jehovah when into town on his chariot rides Naaman, but they don't recognize him. His face is like a little child. His skin is perfect. His ears are there. His nose is back on. His toes are there. His fingers are there. And they're going to say, Naaman, what happened? And he can boast in Jehovah over and over again. He'll give no credit to Baal. And then the second way they'll know he's a worshiper of Jehovah is weekly. They'll smell that sweet aroma of the burnt offering coming from his front yard on that altar built with Israelite dirt. And they'll know that Naaman is sacrificing to Jehovah. And so notice carefully what Elisha does in verse 19. He listens to Naaman's ethical reasoning, blesses him, and says in verse 19, go in peace. And he sends this baby Christian Naaman on his way. How do we apply this word just tonight? I want to make two applications. We have the last quarter of this chapter to look at next Sunday night. Uh, I know it's December 25th, but far more importantly, it's the Lord's Day. Two applications from this text tonight. First of all, when you see a Gentile, unbelieving leper cleansed, do you think anyone is beyond the help of the living God? Maybe you are despairing tonight over the state of your prodigal child that's in the far country. 
Or maybe you've despaired that the living God can cleanse you. You've spiraled downward into a web of secret sin and are despairing. My friend, he can cleanse the filthiest lepers and he can't cleanse you. Listen to what the hymn writer said. His blood can make the foulest clean. Take hope tonight from the saga of Naaman. God cleanses the filthy. Second application you would hear tonight is the evidence of true conversion is change. Naaman is a changed man. Notice these changes. It's changed in his humble attitude five times in verses 15 through 18. He calls himself now when he comes back to Elisha's house the second time. He calls himself your servant. Do you notice what a shift that is from his arrogant rantings in verses 11 and 12? It was pride that kept the prophet, yet kept him from obeying the prophet in the first place. Now, Naaman delights to see Elisha as his superior. So five times he says to Elisha, I'm your servant. You are my superior. (coughs) Naaman is also a changed man in his clear an open confession of Jehovah as exclusive deity. Look again at verse 15, where Naaman confesses there is no other God. This is a transformation. This is the Naaman who's from Syria where they have Baal and a host of other false non-entities known as gods. He's changed like that. And he's changed in his, in his acquisition of a conscience that's sensitive to sin. Do you know what's going on in verse 18? Naaman is saying, Elisha, here's what I plan to do. I plan to still go a couple of times a year (coughs) 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 with the king. I plan to go with him. But when he leans down and he bows in the temple of Baal and he leans on me and his hand is on my hand, I'm not going to be sacrificing to Baal. I'm not going to be praying to him. I'm not going to be acknowledging him. I'm just performing my civic duty. 